You are listening to CFRO Community Radio Station. The upcoming show, Conscious Living Radio, is a program that explores frontiers of consciousness, spirituality, personal growth, emerging paradigms in psychology, health, science, and innovative philosophies that reflect commitment to the advancement of individual, social, and global transformation. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Conscious Living Radio. I'm Tasha Sims. And I'm Mark Cron. And of course, the radio show is still on lockdown. Co-op radio isn't open yet. So we are recording on Facebook, but you can hear the show 100.5 FM radio um, broadcasting out of Vancouver. And then the show gets put on www.consciouslivingradio.org as podcast and also to our YouTube channel, Conscious Living Network and radio. So thanks for joining us today. Um, We are speaking with Carl Greer. He's a retired clinical psychologist, a Jungian analyst, a businessman, a shamanic practitioner, an author, and a philanthropist. He's the best-selling, award-winning author of Change Your Story, Change Your Life, and a book called Change the Story of Your Health. He's taught at the C.G. Young Institute of Chicago, and his latest book is called The Necktie and the Jaguar, a memoir to help you change your story and find fulfillment. So welcome to the show, Carl. Thank you, Tasha. It's an interesting book. I love how um, it takes you on this journey from childhood through your adventures in hitchhiking to corporate CEO of a mining company to getting into Jungian analysis and then shamanic training and practices. And the part that's so cool is, I mean, it's a wonderful read. And then at the same time, you're left with all these questions at the end of each chapter that encourage the reader to reflect And um, they're provocative, some of the questions reflect on their own childhood, their own adolescence, all in order to support transformation and self-discovery. So I'm really curious how you kind of put together, how did that connect for you that one's personal story could serve as such a deep vehicle for change? Well, I uh, first uh, started to just take notes about, for my own personal benefit about uh, my life just to reflect on it as I approached 80 years old and then I thought well maybe this could be a book I could share with my kids and my grandkids and then as I reflected on the way I had changed over the years I thought maybe my reflections might be useful for others uh, as they're reflecting and wanting to make change in their life so that's how I wrote the book and incorporated the questions at the end of the chapters and when we talk about story Maybe we can start with how is story created? Because I think, you know, it's one thing to say, well, this is what I went through, but we are always making meaning. And I could go through the same thing as you and have an entirely different story. So just curious if you want to touch on how do we create our stories? Uh, well, sometimes they're created for us by uh, others. 
uh, our parents helped create our stories, our teachers, our culture, our uh, uh, groups that we hang with. Uh, and so I think uh, a, a path to maturation is to start to write your own story where you become less influenced by those forces I just mentioned and you're really uh, working from some inner place that you and spirit, however you think about that, are creating to give you a life that's uh, more genuine for you as opposed to being written by all these other forces. So that's how I have thought about story and written about it over the, the last years. So, the, but these forces is where I want to dig into because I think a lot of people, it's really easy to say, hey, let's just change our story. The truth is yeah. people bump up against things that feel insurmountable based on their childhood or based on their past or these circumstances or people that you're talking about because, and that's what I want to kind of just see if we can open the door of and really identify for our listeners. Um, how is a story created? How do you begin to, before you can move to that place of your own story, you've got to understand the one that you've created because it's so unconscious. It's not like a little kid is going, oh, okay, now I'm going to create a story. It is happening and you are, I wonder if you can just enter that portal of how we create meaning about what sure. is happening. Sure. I think um, uh, one way to think about it is uh, we all have lives. We have a life. And then somebody could tell a story about that life. And let's say we're going to be the storyteller. And the first challenge, I think, is when we're going to tell a story about our own life, is it an honest one? Because sometimes we tell a story that it's one that we want to hear or we want others to hear, but it may not be our truth. And then once you get past that, when you really looked at yourself and said, all right, this is really my story, and you asked yourself, am I happy with it? And you may say, no, I'm not. I'd like to change it. And then you get, Tasha, to what you said. It may seem like it's impossible to change. You can come up with all the ideas as to why you can't change it. You know, I don't have the money. I don't have the time. I have these obligations and so forth. Let's say you get past that. And then you say, no, I'm going to have some good resolutions. And I'm going to start exercising more. I'm going to start to meditate. I'm going to start to write. And then you end up not living up to those intentions. And why is that? I would suggest it's because part of us doesn't want to make the change. And so how do you get in touch with that part? That's where I talk about the shamanic and the Jungian things, to look at those unconscious parts of ourselves that uh, can be sources of, of help, but may also be hindrances. And you get in touch with them through shamanic journeying, through dream work, through spending time in nature and starting to become influenced by forces bigger than yourself and working in those realms it's possible i have found to make changes that just your will and your intent aren't sufficient to cause mm -hmm. the change to happen yeah so i think you said uh, change happens whether we like it or not i mean it's happening anyway what do you think the most important thing is to let go of so that you can more gracefully flow with this in inevitable change uh, the need for control and the need for certainty. And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're thinking uh, things have to be a certain way and, uh, and I have to control the outcome, uh, that's a hindrance. If you can just let it be, it's paradoxical. You want to have change, but you have to be open to 
the other forces within yourself that could facilitate that change. And then that leads to what a person's spiritual beliefs are. And uh, do you believe that you're part of an interactive universe or uh, you believe that you're here for a certain period of time uh, and then you're dead and nothing else happens? So those beliefs influence what we're talking about now, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And how did you land in the kinds of questions you ask at the end of each chapter? Like, what did you feel was most important for oneself to ask? Um, how did you land in that? In them? Uh, when I was uh, spending time reflecting on, uh, on my life and the changes in it, Tasha, over the, the years, uh, I, I came up with certain themes. And uh, at certain times in my life, certain things were more up for me than other times. And I thought, well, they, in a similar way, might be up for other people. Of course, they'd have their own unique way of dealing with them. And so I just thought I would share some of the questions that I had that hopefully might be useful for the for the reader. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love your questions, because as much as we could say we're all, you know, we all self-reflect and we're all into self-discovery, um, we don't necessarily ask us the, the right questions, right, that will open those doors to really understand what that that information is that that is so vital for us. And I wonder Absolutely. if you can, can you talk about some ways and and to me that information you know i my word is co-creativity i hear you talking about it but you're not using that word when you say letting in some force bigger than you mm -hmm. to me that's co-creative yes. um, but i wonder if you could actually touch on some processes or a specific kind of emotional work that help us access that unconscious material uh well i'll share with you uh my worldview and how that uh, fits into answering uh, your question. Based on some of my shamanic experiences, I've, I've been to that place that I would call the quiet, the place before creation, before the Big Bang. And this is a place that uh, is full of potential. It uh, has uh, uh, no ideas in it, no form of the ideas, no energization of the ideas, but it's all, all potential. And from that place, I believe, this universe 14.7 billion years ago got created. But I also believe that that energy surrounds us now. And so people who you know, want to do miracles or want to do magic or want to do shamanic work, I believe they're interacting with this, this energy. And uh, how you interact with it is using the word that uh, you mentioned a minute ago, co-creation. And uh, so you have to believe that such energy exists. And then you have to have, in my opinion, a respectful attitude towards it. And then you journey to it, however you get to it. And I have a process to get to it that I've written about and when I've had workshops that I have done. And then you start to interact with that energy and you can start to ask it questions as if it's personified. And that energy I have found in most cases for people, uh, if you respectfully work with it, will give you surprising information and energy that helps people make changes that their conscious mind has not been able to make. So you're using other sources, uh, that being one, in order to help you make changes that heretofore you've been able unable to make. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'm so with you. And I think 
breath work, dream work, um, working with archetypes, which I know you're also really fond of. Those are all ways to, to enter. And um, I think the piece that when I, when this landed for me, that the unconscious that I'm trying to access doesn't speak English, <laughs> you know, it doesn't speak in a linear fashion. It doesn't have to make sense. It's not A plus B equals C. And if no. I don't know the answer, I'm going to Google it. Like it's not right. that. <laughs> no, no, no. And so Absolutely. then, you, then you're opening to something else, to the dreams, to the images, to, to the impulse. I call it an impulse. It's like a knowing or a hit that is now. And that's the other thing I notice is on that conscious mind channel, you're always trying. You're trying to get an answer, which means you're not present. But what you're talking about in that stillness, in that place, you are just there. You yes. are pure now therefore when you ask the question it will the answer is right now not something you're going to get right absolutely and and, and you know when it's answered and and, and, you, and you know uh what you're feeling when it does and it's not something that you can uh, uh, prescribe in advance as to how it's going to work out mm-hmm. and so as a Jungian um analyst and delving into shadow and all these hidden places again is there anything you can kind of entice our listeners to play with in terms of accessing some of the buried material what would you advocate uh well people spend uh, years in analysis on that but uh in the in a, a minute or two. Cole's uh, uh, <laughs> notes. That's all can, we're doing. We're just, all we have time uh, for is like lighting no, a little no, fires no, and then no, they can well, follow I, on their own. <laughs> a couple of things you said that I, I want to refer back to. Uh, you, you were talking about uh, these places of energy or archetypes don't necessarily speak in, uh, in uh, paragraphs with uh, topic sentences and in, in English. Uh, it's, it's energy. So you can approach them. You can start to get in touch with this with just, energy, which is sound, you know, music, uh, non-left uh, side brain, but, you know, poetry, movement, dancing, uh, being in nature. So you can get hits, your word, from uh, being in the presence of energy, and you can entice energy to speak to you through other forms of energy, which can be colors, it can be music, it can be dance, you know, all, all those things. So that's one thing. But just a... Uh, uh, a real simple kind of shadow exercise is if you list uh, what are the things that uh, really irritate you about some of your friends, you know, really irritate you. Uh, you put that list on uh, or another list, ways that you clearly don't want to be seen as. Uh, then step back from your list and uh, say, how am I like that? And oftentimes, the shadow is we project onto others things that we don't want to see in ourselves. So that's a very uh, terse uh, way to uh, start to get at it. Uh, and, and, and just be aware that uh, things oftentimes aren't as they seem. And if you go below the surface, but then all of a sudden you can make a new sense of it, but it takes a little self-reflection and a little humility and, uh, uh, a little willingness to say, you know, I don't have all the answers and, uh, and now I'm getting this new hit. Let me think about that, even though it challenges all the way I've thought about life up until now. Right. And that's really hard to, to accept and make change from. 
Yet imagine if we all did that, if we walked around the world, every time we got annoyed, we went, oh, someone just put a mirror up. Thank you. I'll take a look later or whatever. But it would just change everything. Yeah. Yeah. But we have some people that would ought to smash all the mirrors. <laughs> well, then they're hurting themselves, aren't they? <laughs> yes, they are. And then, and then having all the shards in the glass, uh, they're going to cut people's feet when they walk on it. Yeah. So do you think archetypes are, have a, is there a commonality for all people or is it very unique? How do you see archetypes? Maybe you could define archetypes for our listeners who aren't that familiar. Uh, well, if you go back to this place that I said was the beginning, the quiet, it's from which everything comes. So, uh, so what are the things that come from that place? Well, some of the things are concretized. I mean, we see asteroids and stars and planets and uh, our sun, in, which is a star. But then there's just some energies you don't see. You know, you read about dark matter and, and uh, uh, different kinds of energies that influence things. Archetypes are energies, I believe, from this place, the quiet, that influence how we think, act, and feel. So they influence how we think, act, and feel, and they can be interacted with. You know, the classic Jungian archetypes are like the, the, the mother, the father, the puer, the you know, childlike person. The, the shadow is an archetype. The inner feminine for a man would be an archetype. The inner masculine for a woman would be an archetype. The fool would be uh, an archetype. So these are energies that go across time, go across all cultures, to your question, uh, but they may be personified and thought about in that culture in culturally specific ways. So it wouldn't necessarily be uh, our depiction of a, of a trickster, might be a little different from a, uh, an Apache uh, medicine person's depiction or a Norse mythology, you know, picture of the of the trickster but it's the same idea that it's kind of challenging our our ways of being and uh and, and, and making us uh humble and seeing that uh, there's more than one side to something uh mm. so the archetype would have an energy that influences how we think act and feel that we can relate to and the other thing that i would say if we could start to think that it's possible to have conversations with these energies that are unconscious within us and respect them through that conversation just like i said earlier when you go to the quiet that's a real powerful practice that people can start to learn how to do that can be very transformative Mm -hmm. it's one of my favorite things to do working with i just call it parts work and and actually you know with a background both as a therapist and an actor it just hit all the bells and i went wow like absolutely yeah yeah. parts work would be an example of that for sure yeah So at the front of your book, you have a dedication that says for all who are consciously reflecting on their lives and making changes, so their journey is more pleasing to them and their spirit. I'm curious if you think there are some indicators when one's soul is craving nourishment that we might be, that might say to us, hey, you're overlooking your spiritual nature. What are there some indicators people could watch out for? I believe so. Uh, this idea, you know, when salt has lost its flavor, uh, you know, your, your life is uh, uh, tedious. 
you yeah. are losing energy. Uh, you might call it uh, you're, you're depressed. Uh, there's no joy in your life. Uh, you're going through the motions. You're robotically going through things. Things like that can be indicators that you're missing some of the, the joys, the juice and the joy that uh, is available to us. Uh, even in times of, uh, of uh, mortal illness or even in times of uh, uh, a great tragedy, there's always a attitude or a stance we can take towards those things that can make it a little less awful. Uh, doesn't mean that it's not awful in some objective sense, but we do have power to craft, in my opinion, the way we interact with events. Uh, and to your point about uh, being aware when life is lost at Sabre, uh, I think it has to do with things like I mentioned. You know, you're just kind of, it's flat. You know, there's no joy. Mm -hmm. You're just kind of going through the motions. Mm -hmm. What are the needs of the soul? What do you think the needs are? I think that varies uh, for uh, uh, every person, but I think uh, it includes being seen, being heard, being valued. Mm -hmm. and, and I also believe uh, being... Uh, there for others. I think, you know, we are uh, uh, in community and in communion with uh, not only people, but uh, plants and animals and the, and the universe. So I think there is a need for connection. But uh, those would be some of the soul needs that I've experienced and I, working with others over the years, I think they have as well. I, I do often hear people get in touch with what their desire is, or they'll say my heart's longing or my, my purpose or my passion, but then they sort of crash into the reality of the material world. And it's as if they, they're not able to integrate the two things. Is it possible to really nourish the soul while meeting your material needs? I think, uh, yes, it is. And, uh, and how much you have to compartmentalize to do that and then have these two, your soul world and your material world uh, uh, intermingle is, is the art. Uh, mm. But you have to, I think, start off with taking some time to nourish your soul. And uh, that requires being still periodically, just being still. Uh, and I'm a great believer of the power of the healing power of nature, you know, just being in nature. You don't even have to do anything. You just sit by water. You sit in the forest. You sit looking mm -hmm. at the flowers and, and, and adopt an attitude that I believe is true, that nature is observing us just as we are observing nature. Uh, this can start to feed the soul. And then in ways that aren't necessarily a list of 10 ways to bring it into your life, it starts to seep into your life. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that I believe in, Tasha, is, you know, Change is possible at the margin. Just make a little change here. I'm going to spend a couple minutes breathing. I'm going to have a couple minutes just kind of looking up when I wake up in the morning at the, at the, at the clouds and the, and the, and the sunset. Uh, and then maybe I, I do that three minutes. And then I'm going to kind of walk. I'm going to have a little different kind of an exercise. I'm going to stretch differently than I did the day before. And so make a little change at the margins and see how you feel. You know, the nice thing about shamanic work is it's very uh, uh, tactile in a sense. 
Uh, it either works or it doesn't. And you know if it does based on how you feel. Yeah. Even if you're frustrated because you feel it's not working. And then yeah. you can go back to the parts work that you talked about. You start to dialogue with the part that's frustrated that it's not working. So yeah. it's always this kind of a self-contained, really nice, growthful system, even in the midst of tragedy. Yeah. Yeah, no, I hear you. And I think, you know, we, we feed our bodies, we wouldn't go, you know, forget about the fact that we want to have food. And yet, this is just as important, this, this nourishment, and we forget, I think we get, generally, people can get busy, they can get, you know, they're running around, and they forget these simple things you're talking about, which is, even to inhale with consciousness is, is food, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's move into more shamanic overviews. This is a question I, I often ask people because it's been my experience, but reading your book, I, I, I saw it as well. Do you believe that somehow we're touched in childhood, maybe nudged would be the word, toward a kind of understanding of ourselves and our purpose and, and the seed of that lies in our wounds so in your story having lost your mother at a young age and then you start wandering and and kind of you know searching my story was uh, a story of dissociating from my body in abuse and then becoming a teacher of how to embody and find your way back home like there's a direct connection I have noticed between my wounds and my calling and I wonder if you see it that way if that resonates for you in your own life Um, yes, I could, I could see that connection. Uh, my call to, uh, become a healer, uh, undoubtedly, uh, part of that call was to heal myself and, uh, the ways in which I, uh, made changes in my life, uh, were very unconscious at the time, but looking back, there was a certain purpose to them. Uh, and they all served, I think, to uh, heal me and to, uh, uh, luckily, and to uh, give me a chance to uh, uh, lead a life that was ultimately much more fulfilling than the life I was living. Uh, so I think those early things uh, propelled me to make the changes that I made. Mm-hmm. And tell us about your shamanic journey. How did it begin? And maybe give us some, a Cole's notes, can you? Uh, um, I, I talk about it in the book as a very young boy. I was uh, four or five years old living in a suburb of Pittsburgh. <clears throat> I, I walked up uh, the hill where we were, and uh, it was kind of in the outskirts, uh, you know, where there's some farmland close to where we had a house. And... Uh, uh, I went onto this uh, this field. There was a there was a tree that was in front of me, and I had this feeling, which I've always remembered, of, uh, of, of somehow me and the tree were connected, and it was just like uh, it was a merging of uh, of uh, realities. Uh, and I don't know how long that lasted for me, Tasha, but it was at least you know few minutes maybe and I was just stopped dead in my tracks and I just felt this connection this oneness uh 
that it took me a long, long time to get back to. But it's, it's the kind of connection that I've had uh, through doing shamanic work. So I had that memory in my memory bank. And uh, I liked, uh, as a kid, I liked to read adventure stories. And I, you know, the Three Musketeers and, you know, stories of swashbucklers and whatnot. But also, uh, I was interested in Native American and uh, the trappers and uh, those kind of lives. So I had that as a background. And then, as maybe some other, you know, Westerners, you know, I read some of the uh, Castaneda books. And in mm. fact, I read them all. And, uh, and a lot of the uh, uh, Lynn Andrews wrote, you know, Medicine Woman. And right. uh, there's just a whole series of other books like that. Uh, and then I read Michael Harner's book uh, when I was in my 40s. And I started to, on my own, do some of the uh, practices in his book, you know, some of the journey work. And I had a uh, didgeridoo and I had, you know, the drums and I did, you know, try to get into altered states. Uh, uh, and, and then I went to, uh, I was called to go to, you know, various power places, you know, Sedona, you know, places, that, you know, energy. But I didn't have any formal training. I did uh, uh, like Egyptian magic, you know, I read some of the magical traditions. And, uh, but then when I was 60 years old, I read Alberto Viotto's uh, Shaman Healer Sage book. I ended up uh, going to his workshops and uh, became a teacher at his school. And uh, then uh, since then, I've worked with shamans all over the world. And I've had a few particularly uh, really close shaman friends. And I've done just lots of shamanic work in a lot of different places. And it, uh, it's been something that has fed my soul. Mm. And it's uh, been a spiritual calling. And uh, it's, it's been compatible with my other spiritual uh, beliefs. And, uh, but it happened like that. Did you include psychedelics? Uh, I did. I did the uh, plants. Uh, uh, I, I did ayahuasca, the uh, San Pedro. Is there anything you want to share? I know our, a lot of our listeners are very involved and interested um, in this whole realm. Mark um, is part of a, a plant medicine conference that we do every year. So we bring in speakers from around the world. And it's just an area that's of, of interest to so many people right now as if there's a renaissance. But so I wonder if you might comment a little more deeply on both the benefits, um, but also some things to be aware of, because it's not part of our lineage, right? It's not necessarily, you know, so many people are going, okay, I'm going to do ayahuasca and boom, off they go and they do it. Yep. Um, just some, some advice perhaps um, around the exploration in this field. Um, first of all, uh, be aware that uh, they can interact with certain medicines you're taking. You know, there's certain uh, antidepressive depressive, uh, medicines that uh, you don't want to be taking ayahuasca with. So uh, be aware of those interactions. And, and uh, if you're comfortable talking to your doctor about it, uh, say, I'm going to be taking this is there anything i need to be aware of given the medicines that i'm taking the next thing uh have some ideas to the quality control of uh, who's making the brew the brew uh because there's a like all things you can make in a lot of different ways uh and then uh what's the uh the space holding for it 
I mean, it's a spiritual, if you're going to do it for a spiritual purpose, you have to have good spiritual boundaries around it. And that means calling in protectors and having a, a very ethical person leading the, uh, the work. Uh, and then when I do the, the work, Tasha, I'm always saying to the plant, which I believe is a living, active, intelligent spirit, you know, uh, cleanse me, heal me, teach me, and what can I do for you? What can I do for you? So one of the shamanic beliefs that I have, it's this idea of Aini. It's reciprocity. Reciprocity. It's kind of you're giving and you're receiving, but you always, in, in these interactions that I described earlier with the quiet, uh, it's not only, you know, you know, what can you tell me? What can you teach me? Mm-hmm. But also, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? So that closes the, the, the sale. So I would say to somebody who wants to do plant medicine, keep those things in mind and then be aware that it can give you a whole different unexpected perspective that you're then left challenged with. How can you integrate it into your life? And uh, the, the world is uh, in, in not a bad way. It's just the way it is. There, there's uh, many, many great experiences, journeys and plant experiences and dreams that have never really been integrated into somebody's life. So how do you kind of integrate the wonderful experience, this, this wow experience, into your everyday, your job, your relationship, your health, your giving back, all those things? Mm-hmm. Uh, very well said. Thank you. I, I love that. And reciprocity is... Um, I think something people starting out don't necessarily think about. It is very much, how can you help me? And I love, I love the way you phrased it. What can I do for you? Um, which again, makes it a co-creation, everything that happens. That's beautiful. Um, what is the call of the Jaguar? What is it? I mean, the title of the book, The Necktie and the Jaguar. So let's get into the Jaguar a little bit. What is its call? What is it calling you to do? What did it call you to do? Or B. Uh, well, when I when I uh, first was working with in the beginning of the book, I, I described this experience with the shaman. Uh, uh, I was gifted with a stone that has within it the energy of a jaguar the energy of the stone and the energy of the shaman who put it in there, most likely facing West uh, in Peru, maybe at Machu Picchu, Machu Picchu, Picchu hundreds of years ago. So when I was working with this stone for the first time uh, in a ceremony, uh, the stone became alive. It started to, to, uh, throb in the eyes and the stone started to move that not only I but the shaman I was working with could see so this gets into the woo-woo this gets into the other other realms that uh, people who haven't had those experiences really think you're just space die <laughs> but it's it's a uh, it's a uh, it, it's different than that so this was a tangible experience and uh, I was blessed to I've been gifted that stone, so it's part of my medicine now, and I've worked with it for years, and uh, worked with other people 
for years. So it's a very powerful energy for me. But at that time and since then, the, the energy of the Jaguar has been both uh, uh, an other that I never presume that I can like domesticate, or, but it's been an ally and it's been uh, an energy that has been a teacher and it's been a protector. So it's had many uh, uh, aspects to me uh, and it's led me on many interesting places in these transpersonal realms, you know, the realms that shamans and Jungians uh, talk about and in some cases actually experience. So it's been uh, a powerful, uh, as I said again, friend and ally. And I don't want to be presumptuous. I don't know how it, it feels, but uh, it's, been, it's been part of my, uh, uh, my work for a long time. Yeah, I'm very partial to, I remember the first shamanic journey I did when I found myself on the back of the Jaguar, holding on for dear life and seeing just going so fast. And it was, it was for a second terrifying. And then I just knew I had to hold on, but relax. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Right. Isn't that kind of the, if you're really going to be uh, involved with life, you just hold on. Yeah. Life will yeah. take you, but relax. Yeah. It'll show you, but yeah, yeah. relax. <laughs> um, there's so many places I want to go. What? Let's talk a little bit about this being in control thing, because I, I think it's like we're wired as human beings to want to know, to want, like you said, to be certain and to be in control. And it, it's like as if if we knew that a, this was going to lead to this, we would somehow then be able to accomplish it. And yet all this... Um, beautiful energetic work you're talking about is a completely different frequency, a, a completely different skill set, mm-hmm. right? Than that one. And so I wonder, is there anything you could offer that is sort of a, a, a practical guidance towards learning to let go, hold on and let go at the same time, like be there, but let go of, of outcome and control. What's your favorite tool for doing that? Uh, well, just a, another story. Um, sometimes, uh, again, particularly people like with my background, practical businessman, you know, uh, uh, wanting to fix problems, uh, wanting to tell people how to fix problems. You mean uh, a guy. A guy, yeah, right, 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 right. And I'm sure there's no women that are like that. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, me. yeah, please. And, 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 and so, how, how, how uh, does one then, as I'm moving into these other worlds, you know, integrate those? And uh, so, I would have these uh, practices. You know, I was uh, practicing qigong a lot, and I would do this, that, and the other, uh, and I would. Once I was in uh, Scotland, my wife and I were on a vacation, and I had just, uh, for the last few months, had AFib, been diagnosed with atrial fibrillation. And uh, uh, it's a, physiologically, when when, you're, when your heart goes out of whack, it, it, it's a funny feeling. It, it creates a, a lot of uh, uh, emotional feelings as well as just the physical feelings. So um, uh, I went into the bathroom at a place we were staying, and I was going to do some Qigong. And uh, so the point is, 
I was going to do something to kind mm-hmm. of fix this, even though it's kind of a spiritual thing I was going to do. And I heard literally Tasha, was, I heard his voice say, be still, be still and know that I am God. And so the teaching for me at that moment, is sometimes you have to be still. And the other thing that just came to my mind as I'm talking to you right now about this question is oftentimes when one does a shamanic journey, you have these things that happen just kind of out of the blue. And then immediately you're trying to name them and, and make sense of them and, and, and say for yourself, this means that right then. Mm-hmm. And I've learned just be in the presence of whatever happened. There'll be time enough to start to integrate it and work with it, but don't try to, uh, you know, uh, analyze it too quickly. When I was a kid, I used to read Western stuff. And there was one Western author named Max Grant, and he was saying, don't be forever stirring the wine, for soon all the bubbles will be gone. Soon all the bubbles will be gone. <laughs> you need to have little bubbles, you know. You don't want to just kind of keep. And uh-huh. I was a guy who was maybe kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Um, when you look out at the world right now, um, you know, I mean, there's, it's an interesting time we're living in and so much is polarized. There's so many, so much conflict and polarization, this mm-hmm. side and that side, this kind of, uh, di- division in so many different areas. And I know you've got a background also in martial arts, as you mentioned. So is there something that you have learned through martial arts around conflict, around um, this whole idea of being in conflict that could facilitate more harmony in the world today if, if people embraced it or took it on as a principle? Um, I, I, I think I'd say a few things. Uh, me, and the, when I'm in those conflictual situations, uh, I try to just listen more to the other side. Listen, listen, listen before I respond. So that's one thing that I try to do. Uh, and then I, I try to stick to my facts, you know, and, and just say it and not attack the other person for being this, that, and the other. I just listen. I give my facts. Oftentimes they would have a different set of facts. And that's been uh, tough for me to get used to because I think my facts are the facts. Right. And, and so I've had to kind of deal with that. But then I, I do that and I respectfully listen to the other person. Uh, but then in the areas of which the conflict is about, let's say uh, how much you uh, address income inequality, even though I may not uh, convince anybody else, it makes me then what, what can I do to help the societal need that both sides don't agree on? I, I do my help to do what I can. And then I believe that if everything's connected to everything else, back to this quiet from which everything came, then I do ceremony. I have some shaman friends that will do ceremony on behalf of the collective. And so we'll just try to make a a, a difference. And so I'm working with spirit. I'm listening to the other. And I'm trying to help those who have needs in the midst of all all these things. So those are things that uh, I try to do. The, the two principles of, that I talked about uh, in the martial arts that I found interesting, Kime and Ma. Uh, Ma is the, is the right distance from things. And so 
you don't want to be if you're if you're kind of right up close you can get so you know as a therapist you can get so emotionally involved if you're too detached you know that's mm-hmm. not so there's this kind of what's the right distance mm-hmm. uh, and the other thing is uh if you're on ready alert all the time you know you're just ready like that uh it, team a is, is is focus and then at the right moment it's it's kind of a it's kind of that uh, that yeah. move uh yeah. with the key eye you know it and then you relax again. You're loose, 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 tight at the moment of impact, and then loose. So picking your moments to expend that that energy is important, I find, in life. Because if you're if you're doing it, if you're tight all the time, that's not good. If you're loose all the time, you're not gonna affect it. Say when to be loose and when to be tight. I love it. I love it. And you're so right. Like even listening when you when I think of people who are completely loose, I get kind of irritated because I want contact and there's nothing to connect with because there's this, it's just all flow. And of course being tight is like vigilance and anxiety provoking because you're constantly working. And I love this. I love this state that you're describing in between as a place, as a resting place and a, a beginning and an end, really. That's what you demonstrated when you jumped in there with that fabulous sound. Um, You also said in the book, when coming into a new situation as an outsider, you have to learn the rules of the culture before trying to change. It's, it stayed with me. I mean, there were a lot of great parts of your book, but that sentence stayed with me, again, thinking about what's going on in the world today, where, um, you know, we're trying to, even well-intentioned people are trying to make change, <clears throat> excuse me, before they've done what you've just shared which is understand what is happening and for that other person so whether it's a culture or a human experience it's really the same calling to understand and be with what is before you try to move it somewhere else yeah have you got anything coming up that you want to share with our listeners we've got still a few more minutes any events or what are you up to what's what's the day in the life of Carl Greer, and uh, what are you up to? Well, it's been uh, it, it just in the last a couple of months, Tasha, I've been kind of coming out of hibernation, you know, because of the COVID. Uh, my wife and I uh, both have the vaccine. So I'm, as we speak right now, I'm uh, in my office. And uh, uh, I'm doing a little more writing. But the thing that I spend most of my time with now is uh, different charities I'm involved with. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm involved with maybe uh, 60 charities and uh, not just as a donor, but I try to be involved with them as a person who's had life experience in getting things done. And I try to share ideas that might help them do whatever they're doing a little bit more effectively. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't, but I spend a lot of time doing that. And I'm also very interested in helping kids from, disadvantaged backgrounds, get education in fields that are going to allow them to make a pretty good living. And so to that end, there's more than 850 Greer scholars that we've supported past and and, and present. And and we're not only just giving them money, but we're in the schools that they're in. We're trying to see that those schools are giving them a lot of TLC, you know, internships, research associates, uh, you know, ch- chance to do research, uh, mentorship, uh, tutoring, uh, chance to go to national associations, 
just all the things that that uh, the soft stuff that that really is is, is not just soft but, but vital to helping somebody succeed. So I spend my time now uh, doing that, but I've got 14 grandkids and uh, between two marriages, six kids, and so that keeps me busy too. So yeah, uh, yeah. And um, where can people get your book? Is it on Amazon, the uh, usual? Amazon, uh, Chiron uh, is my publisher. uh, And uh, uh, so it's an Amazon, Barnes & Noble, some independent bookstores. And uh, those are the places that they can get it. And if our listeners want to connect, do you have a website or a way they can reach you? Mm -hmm. I do have a website, yes. Kroger.com. I guess Mark's going to put it up or has it up already. Yes. It's already up everywhere. Perfect. (laughs) Well, it's really been a pleasure having you on the show. One last piece, a wish. This is so not a practical kind of thing. It's an energetic thing. I'm giving you a wish to, to the world from your heart to the world. What do you wish for the world? Um, the word that comes to my mind, uh, accept differences. My wish is that the world can accept differences and period. Beautiful. I love it. Well, it's been really a pleasure speaking with you, Carl. Thanks so much for being on the show. Tasha, thanks for having me. Mark, thanks for being in the background. I appreciate that. It's our, our pleasure. And Tasha just ends up asking all the questions I have anyway, so. <laughs> Every time I have one there, it's, it just rolls off naturally. So after a few years, I, I think we're in tune. So, But thank you very much for the work you've done and, and the wide range of work you've done and, and sharing your experience of psychedelics uh, and plant medicines as well. Because as Tasha mentioned, we do have a very large following and community in the work we've done here locally. So uh, thank you for your, your words of wisdom there. My pleasure. We've been speaking with Carl Greer about his book and many, many other things, The Necktie and The Jaguar, a memoir to help you change your story and find fulfillment. All the information is on the links below. Thanks for joining us. Life is an interesting journey. You never know where to take you. Peaks and valleys, twists and turns. You can get the surprise of your life. Sometimes on the way to where you're going, you might think, this is the worst time of my life. But you know what? At the end of the road, through all the adversity, if you can get where you want it to be, you remember whatever don't kill you make you stronger. And all of the adversity was worth it. On your way to the top, you'll do anything. But how do you get your life back when you get there? Yeah, it's my dilemma. What you need to do is be thankful for the life you got, you know what I'm saying? Stop looking at what you ain't got. Start being thankful for what you do got. Let's get it to him, baby girl. Hey!
never mind what haters say, ignore them till they fade away, amazing they are great, but after all the game I gave away, safe to say I paid the way for you cats to get paid today, They'd still be wasting days away now had I never saved the day, consider them my protege, how much I think they should pay, instead of being gracious they violate in a major way, I never been a hater, still I love them in a crazy way, some say they sold the yay and know they couldn't get work on Labor Day, it ain't that black and white, it has an area to shade gray, I'm west side anyway, even if I left the day and stayed away, some move away to make a way, not move away cause they afraid, I brought back to the hood, and all you ever did was take away, I pray for patience, but they make me wanna melt they face away, like I once made them spray, now I can make them put the case away, been thugging all my life, can't say I don't deserve to take a break, you'd rather see me catch a case and watch my future fade away. myself here get myself out
You have been listening to Conscious Living Radio. For free show downloads, additional information about our guests and topics, or details about upcoming programs, check us out at ConsciousLivingRadio.org.